Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Get ready for another great show today only because we have another great guest. This man has a larger-than-life personality. He's been voted America's best preacher by Time magazine. He's among the leading candidates in line to inherit Billy Graham's mantle. And Oprah has called him America's treasure. I'm going to call him Precious. He's built a business empire that includes radio, television, film, best-selling books, and now a business school that specializes in leadership. From preaching at the pulpit to positioning you with power, this man seems to be a one-stop shop for everything you need to get the most out of life. Our guest is the one and only Bishop T.D. Jakes. Welcome to the show, Bishop. Oh, thank you, Vip. I'm really pleased to be with you. Well, did you like the bit about Precious? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going to start a tweeting firestorm, if anything. Yeah, I've never had a guy call me Precious before. <laughs> well, I have to say, sir, you know, when I was doing my research on you, I watched a lot of YouTube clips to get a feel of the type of person you are. And I have to say that your presence on stage is remarkable. And I mean this with the utmost respect when I say to you that you come across like the granddad I never had. You know, you've got this aura about you that makes me want to be a kid again, come sit on your lap, get a big hug from you, and hear you say, everything will be all right. There you go, I said it. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's because I live my life with a, a positive attitude, and I've faced a lot of adversity. I'm certainly not a Pollyanna, but I have faced a lot of ad- adversity, but I've always been a person who believed that ultimately things do turn out well if you keep a positive attitude and you always begin to feed the most important parts of your being and of yourself. Well, so you literally have an empire that surrounds your world. You've got TV, film, radio, books, and a business school. What inspires you to do all this? I mean, you started from the pulpit. You, you know, Vip, I, I think the real key to understanding me, I've certainly been a diverse person all of my life with diverse interests and had the privilege and opportunity to be exposed to a plethora of different types of people and structures, whereas most people tend to stay within the confines of what they do. But I think even beyond that, really, if I were going to analyze myself and put myself on the couch, I think that being raised in an environment where my father was dying while I was being raised Mm. uh, taught me a great thirst for life. Uh, By the time I was 16, my father was dead, and he was 48 when he died. So are you are you a man on a mission of some sort? I, I, I think a sense of urgency, not only a mission. I think most of us are on a mission, but a sense of urgency uh, is derived from from being taught at an early age that life is a fleeting vapor and that we can lose it at any time. Makes you either go into depression or live your life with vigor. And I chose to live my life with vigor and to encourage others to do the same. Do you get bored easily? I haven't been bored for years. <laughs> I, I think uh, creativity uh, stops me from being bored. I certainly think that I'm not the kind of person who could go and sit up under a tree for days and days and days and be comfortable. I tend to be a type A person who's aggressive and, and likes to have my hands in something at all times, building, working, developing something, something at all times. Well, one of your followers or your fans um Joshua Walker tweeted, how did you begin your journey to being the entrepreneur you are now? What were the early struggles? You, you know, I think it's, I have to go back again to how I was raised. Uh, my mother was an educator and my father was a janitor 
who started a business with a mop and a bucket and ended up with 52 employees. And you have to put that within the context of being first African-American and then being in West Virginia, which was predominantly uh, not an African-American environment during the 60s when race really seemed to matter when it came to uh, economics to an even greater degree than it does now in our country. But in that environment and listening at it, my mother and my father discussing business and hiring people and signing contracts and and doing uh, memorandums of understandings and talking about returns on investment was the breast milk that I was nurtured on. And uh, having come from that, there's always been a track in my life uh, that that made me a bit bivocational because I've always wanted to explore uh, that part of my uh, history. My ancestors, uh, from the moment they were cut loose from slavery, I come from four generations of uh, people who were entrepreneurs and the fifth one was a slave. So deep down in my roots and the DNA of who I am as an individual, a self-reliance, hard work, and bootstrap work ethics have always been everything around me and most of my relatives. But then you say you have a great sense of self-discipline. Oh, I've always had a... a what does the average day look like for you? What time do you get up? What What do you do? What, what time do you go to bed? <laughs> you know, I haven't had an average day for a long time. Uh, <laughs> but I can say that I, I generally rise pretty early, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not consistently this early, but it might be 5 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock as a late uh, uh, time to get up out of the bed in the morning. And I'm generally not back in the bed before... 11 o'clock being real early and and 2 o'clock being kind of late. So I I have long days and uh, and busy days, and they are very diverse days. My days are as diverse as my interests are. I can literally go from a, a conducting a funeral to rushing off to a business meeting. I can I can literally do that. I can literally go from meeting with a playwright uh, about a script uh, into uh, the planning of a bride for a wedding. So, so my life is very diverse, and uh, I kind of like it, though sometimes I'm ready to pull the hair out that I don't have, but I, I do like a challenge in my life. Now, you're in TV, you're, on, you're in film. Do you take lessons? Lessons in... Acting, acting lessons? No, 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 no. I'm not so much focused on being in front of the screen, though I have done a few cameo appearances. By and large, I'm more involved as a producer with the films that I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hire cast. I, I'm generally not uh, the, the guy that gets hired to play that role. I'm generally behind the scenes uh, relating to uh, script approval and casting and budgets and sets and and marketing and those other elements about films that are not as as sexy as getting to be a cast member or uh, getting to participate in uh, the uh, red carpet events. And when I do so, I'm there as a producer more than an actor. How do you lead yourself into doing these different, um, although it's part of the same industry, TV, film, radio, media, but it's still a specialization? There has to be a different approach to each of these, a different mindset, a different uh, technique. So how do you lead yourself? Well, the the differences, the, the different nuances between television and theater uh, are things that we have to learn. But the core question of leading myself is about listening and, and, and really... <clears throat> 
uh, that's something that I've been focused on uh, as I've talked more and more about this whole notion of instinct, uh, listening to your, your inner voice, your inner self, what, what draws you, what you're focused on, so that you not only can lead yourself into where you are best suited, because there are a lot of things that we're able to do as leaders that we're not really created to do. And, and I think the epitome of a great leader rests in the fact that your time is reserved for your highest and best use, not just something that you are capable of doing, but what, what is your highest and best use. If you're doing something that somebody else could do as a leader, uh, you should delegate that so that your focus and attention and effort and energy is reserved for that unique uh, circle of, of duties that you are best suited for and that the company, the church, the corporation benefits the most from having you being on reserve for your best use and not micromanaging in areas that are beneath the uh, giftings that you are best qualified to do. Where do you get time to to learn while you're in your busy schedule? <laughs> you know, uh, that, that reminded me, the question reminds me of something my mother told me when I was a child. She said, uh, son, the whole world is a university, and everybody in it is a teacher. When you wake up in the morning, be sure you go to school. Mm. And, and, and so to those of us that are observant, the world really is a classroom, and every association, every business meeting, every script, and most of the things we read every day become opportunities uh, to learn how to enhance ourselves and, and, and to develop ourselves. I was in a business meeting just the other day and, and just marveled at how someone sitting around the table moved a conversation around a dinner table, a dinner, a luncheon uh, meeting, uh, moving the conversation so smoothly that I learned some tips from him. I learned something from everybody every, every day that helps me to enhance what, what uh, God has given me. Well, I've been learning a lot watching you and, and, you know, watching you speak. I love the way you mix motivation, analogies, metaphors. When you explain things, you break complications down in such a simple but powerful manner. You know, you seem to arouse people's emotions by um, appealing to their greatest weaknesses in, in your speeches. And, and that takes real skill. I think um, it was in life class when you told Oprah something to the effect that when you hold on to your history... You do it at the expense of your destiny. That's exactly right. And I, I think what I, I try to do is try to find a phrases that epitomize struggles that, that might represent years of, of, uh, of angst in the lives of people, and not only the people that are in front of me, but also myself. And, and to me, communication is about connectivity. It is not so much the exploitation of someone's pain, because I am filled with pain as well, but it is the connectivity and being able to relate and say, I've been there and this works for me. And I have learned and I try to teach that when we are so focused on our history, we do it at the expense of our, our destiny. And people who are forward-thinking people and looking toward the future have a far less chance of being bombarded with depression and discouragement and, and fear because the, the future is, is possibility. 
and 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 uh, our history is past, and it's like rumbling through a graveyard of dry bones where there is no life to keep going back in the trash can of that which has been discarded. Uh, it's so much more important that we look toward the future and build our energies around something that we can change, because we cannot change yesterday. We only have the potential of changing tomorrow. But you know, that's just one phrase, and you seem to be coming out at, at any given moment in time with like 15, 20 of these, uh, all in one sitting. Now, you have a congregation of 30,000. You've got millions worldwide that watch your sermon every week. What, what, what process do you use when you're preparing uh, your sermon uh, that ensures that you lead them every time? Well, you know, I, I, I think for me, uh, I look at sometimes the sermon is born out of the text, and sometimes uh, the, the, the sermon is born out of, a, out of a truth to which we direct to the text. And it, it depends on, on many variables, and I can be inspired by almost anything uh, that's going on in my life at that time. And then you prayerfully contemplate beyond what personally enriches you to what might have the greatest impact on that diverse audience of people. Because when you have that many people in our church represents 24 different nationalities, uh, all different ages, all different socioeconomic levels of life, it, it is impossible to come up with generalities that fit everybody. So you, tr- you try to throw the broadest net possible and then hope that the rest will come back next week and, and find something uh, of benefit uh, from the succession of sermons. Well, you seem to be hitting bullseye every time. <laughs> That's the goal. I don't know that I always hit it, but the, that is the goal. Uh, it, 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 not only when you're speaking, but in life as well. I, I think that that's where we, we should all live to try to to bullseye, even if we don't, and then to measure the distance between where we fell short and see what we can do to improve our our ability to be more effective. I think that's what makes uh, Tiger Woods a golfer that he is, or Denzel Washington the actor that he is. Is that you hold yourself to a standard of excellence. And you weigh yourselves by the by the effect that whatever you are doing has on those who benefit from it. You don't weigh yourself by visions of grandeur in your own mind, but instead focus largely on the effect uh, the hammer has on the wood, not the effect the hammer has on it on the hand that holds it. Now, other pastors write books and and they preach on TV, but you seem to have taken it one step further. You've got a T.D. Jakes School of Leadership. Yes. Tell me about it. You, first of all, it, it, one of the centralized themes, whether you're talking about my for-profit businesses or my not for, or, or my not-for-profit businesses, is leadership. And one of the things I think that we are suffering from in this country, in companies, in corporations, in churches, and even in families, is leadership. And you can go to school and get uh, a degree in business and still not necessarily be a great leader. You can go to uh, uh, come out with a doctorate in divinity and have all of the historical understanding of theology and still not be a great leader. The great deficit to me is in leadership. And so I thought that we would focus on a school of leadership so that whether you enter into uh, the school, it's an online training program whereby you can get it and cut it and tailor it to the continuity of your time availability and enter into developing yourself as a leader, whether you are a manager or whether you are a pastor 
or whether you're a mother or a father, uh, if you want to be able, because I define leadership as influence and how you leverage that influence to effect change, and if you want to be able to effect more change with the level of influence that you have, whether it is large or small, mm. then, then honing those skills within an atmosphere that you say, this is important to me, was the birthing idea that brought about the School of Leadership. Incidentally, it's a partnership between uh, T.D. Jakes uh, Enterprise and Regent University, and uh, we chose Regent because they had the curriculums and were willing to develop the kind of curriculums that we are still developing that would train 21st century leaders, and it is accredited, and it's an online course for people to pursue, and it is internationally available uh, for them to have an opportunity to just enhance their skills regardless uh, to their schools of thought or their belief system. Now, obviously, the, the, the subject of leadership has been a calculated decision. What have you seen in society that shows lack of leadership? Oh, I think many of the uh, conversations that are going on in government and Congress right now that go on way longer than, than any of us want them to go on. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> you know, show the deficit of leadership. I think that, that we have not always seen our highest and best and brightest people uh, making the kinds of decisions that will move our country forward as it relates to moving beyond politics into changing our world and, and, and the clean air and clean water and economic empowerment and education and so many things that are vitally important that sometimes we get stuck in the quagmire of process and procedures uh, to the deficit of advancement and productivity. And I think whether you're talking about that kind of leadership or first responders in times of crisis, with leadership makes a difference in how people live and sometimes whether they survive or not is determined by how fast we respond and how well we respond to the challenges before us. Now, people see you as a successful man in everything you do. You make it look very effortless, uh, almost with you know a certain such ease. But could you share with us an area in your life where initially you fa failed in your leadership, but eventually you succeeded? Oh, there are many. First of all, I, I, I don't consider myself successful in every area. I consider myself somebody, consider myself somebody who kind of stumbled their way into where they are in life. I, I certainly struggled as well. But I wish I had that disability. I'd be doing great. <laughs> struggled as a father, and if you talk to my wife, she would point out that many times I've, I've struggled and perhaps failed as a husband, but I never gave up, and I think the key to success is never giving up, that that you don't, just because you lose a battle doesn't mean that you, you lose a war. Mm -hmm. uh, there were many periods in raising my children that I felt like a failure, but I didn't understand the, the, the time capsule of maturity, and not to, to judge one moment in isolation of future moments whereby you get to better evaluate and you do get to try again. Uh, I've laid off people as an employer, had to downsize, um, had to relocate. I've been through many situations of that dark moments where it looked like I wasn't going to make it. And early in my marriage, uh, lost everything. Uh, I mean, absolutely everything. Car repossessed. Uh, the job that I was working, they shut down the plant. I couldn't keep my utilities on. I, I was down to digging ditches at one point to put diapers on my boys when they're small. They're now young men in their 30s. But at the time, we went through a very very, very dark place. And I think it is the dark places that illuminates the light. 
I think it is the moments of gross failure that causes the peaks to be so exhilarating. If I, if you, I'm scared of people who have never failed. They tend to be um, insulated, living insulated in a bubble, and arrogant and 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 presumptuous. Uh, it, it, we learn as much by a baby learns as much by tripping as he does by walking. It is it is the steps that he missed that teaches him how to stand up and walk. And I've certainly missed many steps along the way. And when I teach and when I write and when I speak, I do that with in my, the forefront of my mind the possibility that I might be talking to someone who's in one of those uh, stages of failure or disappointment. And I almost feel compelled to say, don't let your story end in a deficit just because you went through a period of devastation. So in your life, that, that fear of darkness that happened in the past, is that what motivates you to lead yourself to make sure it doesn't happen again? I, I think it's funny. Uh, I think you really hit it dead on the head. I think it is the moments of gross failure that gives you the tenacity and the work ethic and, and the focus uh, that some people don't always seem to have uh, to push your, yourself forward and to accomplish uh, the goals that are before you rather than to wallow in the quagmire of the mistakes that are behind you. Well, fear is a great leader. I forgot my wife's birthday once. <laughs> I'll never forget it again. See what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect example. <laughs> once you've been in that doghouse, you don't want to visit that, that, that spot again. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 I'm a, a, a new American, and in this country I notice something that's a little unusual that I haven't seen in other countries. Um, I notice black churches and white churches predominantly. What I would like to see is more leadership where we have a greater mix, or is that asking too much? Well, you're asking the same question that Dr. King asked uh, almost 50 years ago when he said that the 11 o'clock Sunday morning hour was the most segregated hour uh, in our country. Mm -hmm. And we have not, America has not totally answered that question, though I must uh I must indicate that I think it's better than it used to be, and I think that some barriers are coming down in that regard. I do say this about that. I think it's an oversimplification of the problem to think that that is a result of racism totally. Uh, in some cases, that might be applicable. I don't know what the reasons are. It's just an observation. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why I want to define it, because I think most people misallocate it and see it totally as a, uh, as a matter of racism. But I think there are a lot of other factors that play into it. Actually, that like, never occurred to me. You know why? why? Because I noticed that in the white churches, the, the style of the sermon is very different from the black churches. Absolutely. That's what, exactly what I was going to point out. Some of it is culture. Mm. Some of it is music. Some of it is a lot of things. But some of it is history, that, it, that worshiping together was something that was almost forbidden at one time in this country. And I don't think you can ignore that this country started out in, in a state of slavery. Mm -hmm. And there were times that blacks were not allowed. And churches like the African Methodist Episcopal Church were born out of the fact that either blacks were not allowed to worship with whites or they were required to sit in the balcony. And and so out of that segregated mentality came a separation from which you are seeing the consequences today, uh, that the, the segregational laws are long over, but there still seems to be inbred in the culture and the style and the music and the worship and the ideology, the philosophical ideology, is more about leadership and accepting that leadership and understanding that people with diversity can do more than sing for you. They can 
think one of the catalysts is starting to heal that separation are, is television, uh, is social media. From the safety of your home, you get an opportunity to peer into the window of a room that you normally would not go and find out, wow, that touched me too. That inspired me too. And we're losing slowly ever so slowly, some of those inbred uh, separatist ideologies that have hindered us from coming together more effectively uh, in the worship experience. What's been your most proudest moment where you can look in the mirror and say that moment in time was my defining moment of leadership, undisputed? Wow. Uh, I, I wrestle with the question because I've had many moments that were valuable to me right after Katrina to to uh, see the images that I saw, the horrific images of, of people on rooftops and bodies floating down the water and, and to be able to uh, amass uh, teams to develop phones to dispatch uh, information for people as to where they could get housing, uh, to have sent 18-wheeler truckloads of food uh, as close to uh, the, coast, the coast as we were allowed to get and to start feeding people uh, was a moment of leadership that I thought was a great defining moment and a very important moment and a very passionate moment considering not only do I have a large constituency of people down there that look to me for leadership, but my ancestry and many of my relatives were from there. And just relating as an American to another American's pain mm. and responding in moments like that, to have been a part of the leadership that went down there uh, and, and worked with the teams that were uh, looking for bodies in homes after Katrina, to me was a great moment of leadership. But on a personal note, the thing that I am most proud of in all of my life as a human being uh, to this point uh, was proven not in the public but in the private when my mother became sick with Alzheimer's. And while I was busy doing all the things that you're talking about on television, to come home and take uh, tablespoons of applesauce and feed my mother and set her up and take care of her until she died is my greatest accomplishment because I got to prove as a human being that if the shoe were on the other foot, as it was between she and I, that I would give back to her what she gave to me. I think the real quality of a human being is not always what we do in front of people, but those moments where our character is tested amongst the people we love the most, to be there for somebody and to prove to them reciprocity that you didn't invest in me in vain, uh, to me it was my highest honor as a human being. So leadership, people often confuse leadership with someone standing on stage and having masses of people. It can be a one-to-one -one relationship, too. Absolutely. In fact, I think if the one-to-one -one is not valid, then anything that you do in, in public is in some way tarnished. And I, one of the great struggles that I think all leaders have is to balance who you are publicly with who you are privately. It is so easy. You don't have to be a bad person to be a public success and a private failure. Having balance in both areas is a difficult pursuit at best. Uh, but some of our most valiant heroes are heroes where there are no lights or action or camera at all. And that's what really epitomizes uh, leadership and, and, and heroism is to how you respond to the crisis before you, whether it is public or private. To me, a great deal of leadership is crisis management and problem management. And people who don't want problems and don't want crisis don't want leadership. So you're trying to remove that misunderstanding that leaders are not born, they are created. 
<laughs> exactly. I, I think I think that we have too many leaders in the wings who do not recognize that the people that you are waiting for is you. <laughs> you know, the the they and the them is you and me. And and the reason that I have the school of leadership, and the reason that I, I wrote, I'm, I'm just finished writing a book on leadership, is that I think that we have leaders in the wings, and if we, if we have leaders in the wings. We need to dispatch them now because I think some of what we're seeing right now, we have people in positions who have the power but do not have the innate proclivities to lead in accordance with the positions that they have been given. So in your school, um, based on the fact that it's got your influence in it, it's called TDJ School of Leadership, can religion and leadership be combined because God teaches us to follow, not to lead. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting uh, presupposition. In fact, I don't see Jesus as teaching or God as teaching us just merely to follow, but I, I see him more teaching us uh, how to lead. Mm-hmm. I see, for instance, Christ with the disciples as a Christian. I see Christ with the disciples uh, training them to be leaders. He spent more time with the 12 than he did with the 5,000. Uh, I think that ultimately our experiences with God uh, are done so so that we can reduplicate them with how we work with our children and we work with our, our lives. It is leadership development. If we are created in his likeness, then part of that likeness would be leadership, to subdue, to have dominion over the earth, to be able to lead. We have been left in charge of a planet. Regardless to your belief system, your theological construct, you cannot deny the fact that we have been left in charge of a planet. And so then if we shirk that responsibility and just pray and say God will handle it, then we fail to understand who we are uh, in the organizational chart of life itself. And I think it is incumbent upon us to assume the responsibility that to him much is given, much is required, and to act as leaders and not just sit back passively and let whether it is the world or our families or our future fall apart from a passive perspective as if we did not have the ability to enact change on our circumstances. Well, I was studying your program outline in, in, in the TDJ School of Leadership, and you have one on the ministry leadership. What's missing in, in the ministry that you needed to fill that gap? Well, you know, I think that people of faith benefit largely when they have sense of a sense of leadership and also have a sense of business. Because though the church itself is not a business, it exists in a business environment. If you're going to buy property, if you're going to hire staff, if you're going to apply for loans, if you're going to interact with the community around you, you have to have some business acumen to uh, function appropriately within the mandates of, of the IRS, for example. You have to have some business understanding. But beyond the business understanding, you also need leadership because if people are going to follow, we can't spend nine months trying to decide what color the carpet is going to be. Somebody has got to say, we're going this way or we're going that way. And to have leadership and to train other leadership, uh, it's not only something that the church benefits from, but it's also something that the community itself benefits from. And when you think about it, conversely, I I say the business community needs more faith. They need more ethics. They need a greater sense of morality. Sometimes they need a greater sense of humanity. Sometimes they're better at bottom lines and ledgers and return on investment than they are at people. 
and at loving and caring and making sensible decisions means you have to get out of the boardroom sometime and leave the CEO suite and come down and touch people where they are because that sense of humanity is better than the millions of dollars you spend on marketing campaigns that reflect ledgers but do not touch people. And the school motto is higher learning for a higher purpose. Yes, and I think we are forever, we are forever learning a, a higher purpose. When you asked me earlier about boredom, I think one, one of the things that keeps me away from boredom is that every day ups the ante. I don't want to live today as I did tomorrow. I want to be progressive, uh, ever moving forward, not backwards. And, and so when you start talking about progressive learning and progressive leadership, it's really focused on what are you going to do next rather than bragging about what you did before. Now, what have you used to expand your business empire? Do you have a strategy or do you use instinct? think it is a combination of the two, mm-hmm. uh, and, and one without the other uh, leaves you uh, impotent to totally evolve to the degree that you need to. And as you know, I, I've just done a book called Instinct, and I, I wrote the book Instinct because uh, so many times we're running off of intelligence without instinct. But I like to say to people that while intelligence is important, whether it comes through data or training or education or information or exclusive information to which you have been provided, you need that. But intelligence may load the gun, but instinct pulls the trigger. Uh, instinct tells you when to do what. So then if you gather all the data and all the information and you've got all the intelligence, but you don't have the instinct to know how to use it, and this is the thing that I think we're having a deficit in when it comes to true leadership, which led to me writing instinct. Mm -hmm. I wrote it because instinct is something that is discovered. I'm not sure it's something that is taught. We have to discover uh, the instinct and the innate ability that we have within ourselves, not only to know how to do something, but when to do it. And then sometimes instinct will lead you into what you need to be doing at this particular season in your life, in your career, or your company. Well, I spent a lot of time last night before I went to bed thinking about this because I knew I was going to be speaking with you today. And I came to some sort of, not a realization, but, you know, we live in a world where... um, I guess the barriers to standards of behavior uh, are lowering. They weren't as high as, say, during my parents' time or our parents' time. Um, so if I was to look for my instinct, I find I would, it would be clouded within myself with a whole bunch of temptation. So how do you harness that instinct, which is relatively um, pure, I think we must make a line of delineation between mm. instinct and urges. Yeah, instinct and temptation. Yeah, because, see, your urges and temptations appeal to the low, the lowest parts of you, the most base part of you. Right. But your instinct is your compass, how to survive in this environment. Whether you take the instinct of an animal and you put him in an environment and maybe his instinct leads him to the water, Maybe he's born on land, the, the egg hatches on land, but the instinct is for water. Instinct is what draws you. 
what what motivates you what what beckons you and sometimes the instinct will exist in an environment where you have not necessarily been trained or intellectualized i think sometimes we we are held captive by what we studied and sometimes we do that at the expense of discovering what we were created to do so instinctively uh we need to have some moments uh of tranquility whereby we can examine ourselves and find our greater purpose and the purpose lies in our instincts and the instinct really is the compass to which we discover our purpose you see for me hunger is instinct gluttony is temptation <laughs> that's one way to look at it <laughs> <laughs> the other thing i was thinking about instinct was it's almost like god speaking to us like an instinct temptation think, is a way of satan speaking to us in that I case satan I has am, my number on speed dial i think i am getting down to the creator i think mm. i am getting down to understanding that the way we are wired is a preplan within us that not only causes us to be able to survive and sometimes to adapt in different environments but i also think that it is a compliment of god that he has so equipped us that as we go through life our instincts guide us into our purpose and place and one of the problems we have today if i may say so we can say we are so busy that sometimes and that we don't take the time to listen to our instinct and we're not trained to listen to our instinct but for example when i was writing the book instinct one of the things that inspired me was to go into Nike's corporation and where they have modeled uh, a waffle iron and a tennis shoe and 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 as you research the founders of Nike it it really started when their founder looked at a waffle iron and a tennis shoe and said if i took what was on the waffle iron and put it on the tennis shoe i would have something that was sleeker and move faster well you don't learn that kind of concept in a university that's not intellect that's instinct that creative influence whereby we have instinct to say wow i see something there that other people don't see i'm drawn to that i want to put my energies where my instincts are many people listening at us right now have hired people who had more degrees in a thermometer they had they they were fully loaded with all kinds of intellectualism but when you hire them they're incompetent as leaders because they do not have good instinct and that's why I wrote the book because there's a deficit of information out there that shows us how to listen to those instincts how to activate those instincts and gives us permission as it were to respond to those instincts even when our resume may not be enriched with experience in that area to become explorers and go on expeditions and discover new idioms of thought and concepts and ideas beyond the parameters of what we have always done how how does your book explain how to train yourself to start listening to your instinct or what the instincts are or when the instinct is speaking my my book discusses ideas like you take a lion and um, the lion is born and raised in captivity and and every experience he has had in his his history has trained him to live within the prism of the bars but why do we keep the cage door closed we keep the cage door closed because his instincts say there is something beyond the cage that i'm attracted to even though i have never done it before if he runs out of the cage into the wild without some training some intermediate stage of introduction he will do it to his own destruction 
because instincts without preparation is just as dangerous as preparation without instincts. My book is about balancing those instincts against the information you need to not only discover your instincts, but to move into them at a rate in which you can move beyond the cage into the wild and discover that in your DNA is that survival instinct. Suddenly you're, you're scratching up a tree or chasing an animal, the lion does, that he has never done before, and he's never had an opportunity to discover himself. I'm talking about evolving from, from one level to the next, from faith to faith, from concept to concept. You can only do that when you have the courage to break out of the cage. And many people, many people who may be wealthy or not wealthy, it doesn't matter, they are still living in cages and frustrated, pacing in the cage, obeying all the rules, but feeling the urge of an instinct that I was really created for more than the walls that surround me. And thereby, in a way, rediscovering yourself. Rediscovering yourself over and over again. I talk about, the in, in the book, I talk about how we are born in a cage. We are born in a, from a womb. We start out in, in a womb, and we are birthed into a bigger world. We enter into the family, and the family is just another cage. And all of a sudden, in adolescence, we demand release and break out into another world. Why do we then get here and stop? We ought to keep bursting into new idioms of thought and new ideas and new concepts that keep us learning and keep us excited and sometimes keep us a little bit frightened and respectful and, and, and titillated and, and aware that like an animal moving through a jungle, there's an awareness when you break out a routine. There's an alertness when you break out a routine that I think is missing from people today and it leads to so much depression and taking drugs to go to bed and drugs to get up in the morning and happy pills to make you smile. Oh, yeah. We need to break away from that and get back to so our So in order instinct. to get in touch with your instinct, you, re you need to use fear as a fuel as opposed to a water hose putting out a fire. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it does become a fuel. And not only does it become a fuel, it becomes, it, fear can be a little bit addictive because... Just the way you use the fear to fuel your own ambitions in your life. Well, I think that and then this... Fear, when you are fear, fearful to this degree, mm. um, I, I, I talked about uh, when I was writing that, that part about fear, my grandchild comes down the stairs and I'll, I'll be writing something and he, he'll, he'll, you can feel him waiting on me to look up, you know, and, and finally I'll say, boom, and he'll run up the stairs again. <laughs> and then later he'll come back down the stairs and wait and wait and wait and wait. And if I don't look up, he'll say, scare me again, Papa, scare me again. Because he wants to have that feeling again. And I think that I'm a bit like my grandchild, that though many challenges have been frightening and daunting and made me stay up all night figuring and planning, as soon as I get them resolved and everything gets quiet and calm, I look up and say, oh, my God, I need something to scare me again, to make me think again, to make me bright and vibrant and have meetings and be inspired again. And I think when we stop having challenges that are noble enough that, that, that they titillate our senses and make us aware and cautious, not fearful to the point of being debilitating, but cautious enough to be alert and alive, then we stop being the creative beings that we were designed to be. And where can we get the book? Well, the book has not been released yet, but you can be the first to get it by pre-ordering it on Amazon.com. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, they are. It is up and available there. And as soon as it's released, which will not be long, uh, it will be out in the spring. You'll be the first ones to get them. And many people are going on to Amazon.com and ordering it, uh, pre-ordering it now. Oh, great! Looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. Now, sir, life is not about what you could not do so far. It's about what you can do going forward. So, what can your followers expect from you in the next five years? Part of the greatness of life is mm-hmm. that I cannot totally answer that question. The great mystery, the great intrigue that gets me out of the bed every morning and makes me say my prayers every night is that the uncertainties. Uh, they, there are certainly things that I'm doing and projects that I'm working on that I want to know, but I'm also at that scare me again thing every so often is, is how I live my life. Uh, we're getting ready to release a movie called Black Nativity, which is a, a creative remake of a work that was originally done by Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to come out Thanksgiving weekend, and I'm getting ready to go to New York uh, to an event to release that movie, and I'm excited about Black Nativity. I've got a movie called Heaven is for Real that's coming out uh, Easter weekend that's going to be absolutely awesome. It's a true story. You know, I shouldn't have asked that question. This is going to take another 20 minutes. Yeah, there's so will. much, in, there's so much on your list. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing all kinds of things. <laughs> Carry on. But it's based on a little boy who almost died on an operating table and came back telling his dad that he'd been to heaven and talking about people that he'd never met. And uh, it was on the bestsellers list for, I think, about 20 weeks. It's called Heaven is for Real. We got the rights to do that, mm-hmm. and we're going to be uh, releasing that uh, Easter weekend. And there's all kinds of great things uh, that I'm doing. But what I think they can most count on for me is to just uh, keep thinking and keep living and and. In, in whether in written form or in cinematic form or in speaking form to find a way to encourage other people to to follow their instincts and follow their dreams and, and keep getting up out of the bed in the morning with an anticipation for what's next. Well, two things I want to know before we sign off. The first one, what's the wildest business proposition you've ever received? <laughs> wildest. T.D. Jakes, boxer shorts? <laughs> no, no. It, it's, I've had some pretty crazy things. Uh, this wasn't wild by virtue of it being an insane idea, but it was a wild time to mm. do it. It was that uh, I was offered an opportunity to uh, buy out a marketing firm uh, right before the recession. And, and the whole marketing firm, their strongest clients were uh, the automotive, automotive industries out of Detroit. Right. And so I thank God every day that I didn't do that, because had I done that, I would have tanked in a miserable way. And you probably wouldn't be doing this interview <laughs> talking about how successful I've been. So the only loss I had was the due diligence that I spent to lead me to the conclusion. You know, this show's not about success. It's about how people overcome failure. You're right, exactly. And I would have been a real candidate for that, had I? I think you would have. Yes. What about opening a restaurant? I'm sure you've had offers. Yes, I've had uh, many offers to do things like that, and, and secretly, I've fantasized about doing it. From a from a child, I always wanted to uh, do that, and I think though I serve spiritual food, I hope every Sunday, I, I've always liked to see people laugh and have a good time. And so, you know, I don't know where it's going to take me. I've been offered cologne deals and endorsements. Wine, endorsing wine. I have not been asked to do that. Just think I of it, not. the bishop's wine. That sounds good. Can't you see that? And, sir, finally, I've got to ask you this. The most important, where in the world do you get your suits? (laughs) 
Well, lately they've been given to me more times than I can you believe that. Uh, most of my friends are professionals from various walks of life, and, and they give them to me. And then when they don't, I've got tailor friends who are always making suits for me in the hopes that they can make future suits for me. So if any of them are listening, uh, I'll send you my measurements. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can get a few more. <laughs> well, you're always so well put together. You know, oh, it's thank you. Thank fabulous you watching you. <laughs> Thanks. For a big guy, we don't get those kind of compliments often. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really going to soak that up today. <laughs> well, sir, Bishop T.D. Jakes, thank you for coming on the show, and God bless you very much. God bless you. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. For more fascinating stories, log on to foxnewsradio.com and click on to the VIP Jazzwell Report. And keep your ears open for the next airing of my report coming soon. Thank you.